Please turn with me back to Acts chapter 17 in your Bible. Acts chapter 17. Now this is a sermon picking up definitely on on last Sunday's sermon, but let me just sort of catch us up to speed if you were not here last week and maybe give a fresh illustration to begin. So, um, a number of years ago, I was uh, involved. I was in a conversation with a UGA student down the road here at Tate Plaza, right there, you know, across from the stadium and the whatever. What's that bridge called behind the stadium? Whatever that's called. I was on the other side of that bridge across the stadium in Tate Plaza, and we we did uh, with the Great Exchange, which is a which is a, an evangelistic ministry. Uh, I would sometimes go with them. A number of some of you have, have done this as well. We would have evangelistic kind of conversations with people we'd never met before, just sort of cold turkey, walk up to someone and talk to them. And there was one conversation that uh, the audio of the conversation is recorded. At least part of the conversation is recorded on audio. So I was able to go back and listen to it again this week to remind myself exactly of what was said. But um, I open with this illustration because I think it does make the point of what's happening in our passage. So I was with two other people, uh, Vic Doss, who's the college pastor at Watkinsville First Baptist Church, and another young guy named, who was about my age, or a little younger than me, Joseph Morrow, and, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Joseph Strickland, who we were together, and we were having a conversation with this young guy. He was maybe 18, 19 years old, freshman at UGA, very polite young man, and he was a Hindu. He'd grown up uh, with a Hindu background in another part of Georgia. And uh, we were asking him num- numerous questions about his religious beliefs and what he might believe or what he might say. And it was interesting that what he would talk about. He had an uncle and a father, apparently, who would take him to temples that they would go worship uh, it, somewhere in, near Atlanta. And he said, you know, his, his dad or his uncle might go in and they might be there for an hour at a time, uh, worshiping or praying or whatever they might do. In the temple, he said, I might go in for five minutes and I was back out again. And so we kept talking. And uh, eventually, uh, Christianity came up in the conversation. And this is the part where I didn't quite know what to do. He said, we said, well, you know, what are your thoughts about Christianity or the Bible? And he said, well, oh, I'm I'm a Christian too. Now, that was the moment when the computer here just stopped working. I just, wait a second. Okay, so you're a Hindu, you grew up Hindu, your family is Hindu, you go to Hindu temples, you worship uh, relatively regularly, like weekly, uh, in in the Atlanta area, you're you're Hindu. Okay, so you're Hindu. Very clear. Okay, very polite, nice young man. Oh, you're, you're a Christian too. Now, I don't know about you, I don't have a landing pad for that in my mind. There's not a place where I can make sense out of, I'm a Hindu and I'm a Christian. And so, uh, we continued talking. And uh, Vic, who was standing next to me, said, now listen, I don't, I don't want to sound offensive here, but it, you know, in, in my estimation, Christianity and Hinduism are contradictory to one another. Seems like a relatively safe comment. <laughs> Hinduism and Christianity contradict one another. He said, um, how would you reconcile that? And he said, oh, I I know, my my parents would definitely say that Hinduism is the right way and that Christianity is not true. He said, but I don't think quite like that. I I just kind of take ideas from different places. And he said, I took a religion course here at UGA, and we learned all about Adam and Eve and about Jesus, and yeah, I believe those stories too. And now… We tried our best <laughs> to, to explain the gospel, and we did, and we even tried to kind of put some framework around this, trying to show that you, you can't… Like, at one point in the conversation, uh, I can let you listen to it if you wanted to, but at one point in the conversation, uh, we were trying to say, okay, Adam and Eve in the garden is one creation story. God made us, put us in the Garden of Eden. Hinduism has a radically different view 
of where everything came from in the world. You, you can't believe them both. Just basic logic would say that. And then we said, okay, in Hinduism, what happens? He started describing a reincarnation and how if you live a good life as whatever you may be, whether an animal or a person, you know, cows are even above uh, people, I believe is how it works. And if you, if you live a good life, you come back as a higher reincarnated self, as a different form. And if you do it enough times, you may get to the top of the totem pole and eventually you, you enter, you become one with the world essentially, and you, you sort of disappear into the ocean of oneness with the world. And it's all based on works. Okay, I tried to explain to him our view of salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, not by our works. I said, we, we don't believe in reincarnation, but resurrection, and on we went. And he just was looking at me like, yeah, yeah, that all sounds good. And uh, now, these are the effects of what we've been calling for the last, what, 30 or 40 years, postmodernism, right? The idea that there is no true truth, there's just sort of whatever you want to believe and it's true for you, and just it's almost like religions are a buffet, and you go and find a little bit of Hinduism that you like and a little bit of Christianity and Buddhism, and you kind of put it on your plate. It might be secularism. You kind of put it all on your plate, and you make your own, you make your own sort of religious position, and no one's view is more right than anyone else's. It's just whatever view makes you feel good, whatever view makes your life seem to work better, that's true for you. It's good for you, and don't try to tell me I've got to believe what you believe in on. You've all heard this many times. And on and on it goes. Well, what Paul is dealing with here in, in, in Athens is he's dealing with people in this scene who have zero biblical background. And this is one of the rare moments that we get a long message given to people who don't know anything about even the Old Testament. This is not a Jewish group here at Mars Hill. This is not a God-fearing Gentile group who knows all about Moses and Abraham. This is a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who do not know anything really uh, about Moses or Abraham or David. And so what does Paul do? Paul does not begin by saying, Jesus died for your sins, because they would probably get a response of similar puzzlement as I got that day with the Hindu, just miscategorizing every word you say, just putting it in the wrong filing cabinet in their mind. And so what needs to happen? Paul realizes this. He needs to stop. He needs to step back. And he needs to frame the entire biblical picture. From Genesis to Revelation, Paul's going to step back and he is going to begin to deconstruct their worldview, and he's going to begin to reconstruct or construct a biblical Christian worldview. And he doesn't actually get to Jesus until the very last bit of his message, because if he jumps straight to Jesus and his death and resurrection, they won't know what he's talking about yet. And so he's got to put everything in place first. And what I've been arguing for last week and today is that as our culture becomes increasingly secular and increasingly biblically illiterate, again, I'm not mocking, I'm just, it's just true, as people know the Bible less. You will run into college students who don't know that the Bible has two testaments, and this is not mockery, this is something we should help explain, but they won't know even what the numbers in the Bible mean. Like, is this a, a section, or what do you call the 17? It's chapter 17, or what are the, these are verses, just not aware of what, what, what really the Bible is. And we love these people, we want, to, we want to reach out to these people, but we've got to start further back than we sometimes start with our gospel presentation, and if I could just make this really clear, I really do recommend that you do this on your own time. It would take too long right now. You, you really should, seriously. This is, this is a worthy experiment. You should take Paul's message in Acts 13, it's a long message in Acts 13, and you should read it from beginning to end in a synagogue. He's in a synagogue where they believe the Old Testament. You should read his message in Acts 13, and then read his evangelistic message in Acts 17. 
Now, I'm going to say a couple things that we need to be very careful not to misuse what I'm about to say, because what I'm about to say has been abused by people who want to distort the gospel to please the culture. And I'm not talking about distorting the gospel to please the culture. I'm talking about being true to the gospel, but making it more intelligible to, to people in our culture. So, you ready? This is the part people can take and run the wrong direction. In Acts 13, Paul quotes Scripture over and over and over and over in his speech there which makes sense, right? He's in a synagogue. He quotes the Old Testament over and over and over, and he's, he's just, the whole message is a running narrative of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Jesus, right? He just runs the story straight to Jesus. In Acts 17, the, the number of explicit quotations of the Bible is zero. Now, be careful what you do with this information because it, I'm not trying to say what you might think here, but he doesn't quote the Bible explicitly one time, but he quotes pagan poetry. He quotes pagan inscriptions and writings three times. Now, be very careful with this information, but it's still a fact. In Acts 13 in the synagogue, he quotes the Bible nonstop. The whole thing is, a, is, a, is an exposition of the Old Testament. In Acts 17, there is zero explicit references of Scripture, and there are three references to what pagans have written. One is to the unknown God, one is in Him we live and move and have our being, and the other one is we are all His offspring, three pagan writings. Now, do you see how someone could misuse this information? to say, you don't really need the Bible in evangelism if someone doesn't believe in anything in the Bible. That is not what I'm saying. What Paul says in his speech in Acts 17 is a paraphrase of Old Testament teaching. So, you're going to hear him saying things that he gets from where? Genesis, 1 Kings, Isaiah. Paul is definitely using his Bible as he explains this. Even though he's not using explicit quotes, he is definitely giving you what the Bible says about creation and about fall and about all those things. So, he is definitely relying on the Bible. But why is he quoting pagan poetry and these kinds of things? And I would say what he's doing is he's trying, and I'm going to get to this more at the end of the message, he wants to use some of their own writings against them. I'll explain how that's a good thing to do, a merciful thing to do. And he's trying to put all the furniture of the biblical storyline in place as he gets to the gospel. And so let's look at Paul as he does this. And uh, I'm going to tick through, and I, you, you may or may not want to jot these down. You don't have to. I'm going to move through, it's a lot, nine things quickly that Paul is telling us about God in this brief message. And, you know, it takes about two minutes to read his message here. But we know messages given at the Areopagus could last for two or more hours. So, very likely, this is more than an hour of Paul speaking, and Luke is boiling it down to the main points and giving us just kind of a skeletal version of this message. So, each sentence probably had a lot of content behind it. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "'Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious.'" For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So the first thing is God is knowable. And yes, that is a real word. God is knowable. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, one of the largest rising beliefs today is not so much pure atheism, but agnosticism alongside atheism. Agnosticism means what? I don't know if there's a God. The word gnosis is the word for knowledge in Greek, and the word a means without. So, a gnosis, agnostic, means without knowledge. And so, it's someone who just says, listen, there's no way I can know for sure if God is real or if He exists, and then you might find a hard agnostic or a soft agnostic. You say, what is that? Well, a hard agnostic is someone who says, I don't think you can prove that God exists, but I'm basically sure He doesn't. 
So I'm, I'm, practically I'm an atheist. In real life, I live like there is no God, and it would be very hard for you to convince me, but I suppose it's theoretically possible there's a God somewhere. That's a hard agnostic. So you probably know what a soft agnostic is. That is someone who says, I'm not convinced that God exists, but I am very open to the idea, and I think that it would make a lot of sense out of the world that we see. And let me say here, people can move on these scales over time, okay? So someone who might be in one category may move uh, over time, but Paul here affirms very clearly from the start that God can be known. Uh, and, And we'll see how as we move forward. Number two, God is one. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Just right there, verse 24 is packed. But number, number two here, God is one. That should sound familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James says even the demons believe God is one and tremble. That there is one God is the basic teaching of Christianity, and this is monotheism, right? There, there is one God. And Paul is saying here, He made everything. He, he made everything. So there is one God, you can know Him. Number three, God is Creator. God is Creator. He made everything that you see uh, outside. Now, in Romans chapter 1, which complements this message really well, if you read Romans 1 next to this, they really complement each other a lot. But Paul in Romans 1 will say, hey, listen. I can almost Paul paraphrase it, say, you know, paraphrase this today, like, okay, you've got an iPad, and you, you turn it on, and it works a certain way. If someone had never seen an iPad before, okay, someone never seen this before, and you showed it to them, they would immediately know, without having an argument, that this was brilliantly designed by some intelligent person or group of people. You, you wouldn't need to argue that. They would look at it, and they'd say, that is amazing. You mean, you, you can pick up a phone or an, or an iPhone, you can, you, can, you can look at someone's face and talk to them live, and they're in another country, and there's almost no delay. There's like a split-second delay. Nobody who's… No, if, if you introduce that to someone, they would all say, clearly, that was brilliantly made by some intelligent being. And Paul will say, you can look at how an acorn works to create an oak tree out of what? Dirt, air, sunlight, and water… I'd like to see you try that, by the way. Take dirt, air, sunlight, and water and try to make an oak tree. Just good luck. That, that would be a good experiment. Uh, the, the acorn can do something absolutely astonishingly brilliant. And we look at that and we say, no, 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 that, that's got to be accounted for through random mutation and natural selection. That, that's got to be something that just happened on its own terms without any guiding or anything. Or the human eye that is unimaginably complex to where we cannot yet duplicate the human eye. The, the most brilliant human minds on earth who can make the iPad and the iPhone, we cannot yet duplicate the human eye. We can't make one that is as sophisticated as our own eyes are, and yet what are we saying? We're saying that they just, they just happen. Paul would say, no, we know through observation that there is a brilliant, powerful, gracious God who made everything as it is. There is a Creator which, by the way, would argue against one group that he's talking to, the Stoics, who believed in pantheism, that everything is God and God is everything. Paul says, no, God is separate from creation, and He actually made creation. He is not one with creation in that sense. Look also, real quick, skip down to verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So God is not just creator of nature. He's creator of you and me. Now, if there is ever a 
a, a, an idea in all the Bible that we should just make loud and clear in our culture. It is the idea that every human being was made by one God, and we are all descended from one man, which is Adam. So, you've got to have a historical Adam here pretty clearly, right? So, you've got one literal Adam. Eve, remember, was created from Adam, remember, from his side. So, from Adam came all human beings, and one God made us all. We've got to be loud about this because the world is obsessed right now with the dignity of human beings. Now, listen, they have no foundation for their obsession with the dignity of human beings. From their perspective, from the secular worldview, what, nothing was running down the hall and tripped and there was a big bang 13 and a half billion years ago? And, you know, where did the big bang come from? Where, who, did, who created that? What, what incredibly powerful being brought the universe into existence? And, and then you, you move forward. Okay, so you're telling me right now, you're, you're telling me that um, all this stuff came from nothingness for no reason. There's no objective purpose, no real morality, no real right and wrong, which Richard Dawkins says. There's no real evil, no real good. It's just all indifference. And then we're headed towards what? As Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist, said, one day, he said, a few billion years, the sun will burn out and all humanity will be dead. That was in his book, God is Not Great. So early in that book, Hitchens says, one day, this solar system is going to burn out, all human beings will die. I'm saying, okay, therefore, love your neighbor as yourself? <laughs> How does this logically follow? We came from nothing for no purpose. We're headed towards extinction. There is no final judgment. There is no ultimate right and wrong. There is no ultimate standard of morality. You have no purpose. You're not even designed intelligently. You have no, you're, just, you're just an accident on a speck for no reason, and yet we should really care for the poor. I'm sorry. Those two things do not logically go together. So often in our culture, you have people very loud about things that we often think are good, you know, caring for people, worrying about people's dignity and caring for the poor. Well, yes, we should do all those things, but why? And the secular world has no foundation. They have this wonderful house that is floating in midair. There's just nothing to ground it on. So what should we do? We should step in and say, you can know God. He is one true God, and He made everybody from one man, and therefore everyone has equal dignity. Everyone is in God's image. No ethnicity is superior or inferior to any others because they are all equally made in the image of God. Whether you have a high IQ or you are mentally challenged, it does not matter. You are all equally made in God's image, male and female. That is a powerful message today that our culture does not have that we can say, listen, we have a reason why we should care about those who are otherwise ignored. We have a reason why we should care for those who are otherwise neglected because everyone is an image bearer of the one true God. Number four, God is not just creator, He is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. Look with me at verse 24 again in verse 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, do you see why I said it was deceptive that He's not quoting the Bible? You hear everything He's saying is from where? This is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is it not? He is telling you what Scripture clearly teaches right here in these verses, and God is self-sufficient. Now, how is that an evangelistic strategy? God doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient. He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything. In fact, guess what? Guess who needs somebody? We need Him not just 
to have a life, but life and breath and everything. Your next breath is owing to God's grace. God is personally giving you every heartbeat, every breath that you breathe is directly from God, whether you know Him or not, whether you believe in Him or not. He is graciously giving you every meal you enjoy, every night you sit and laugh with your friends, every time you spend time with family, whatever's going on, that is God graciously giving you more and more undeserved grace, and we need to be very clear. When we serve God, we need to be very careful what we mean. The only way we can serve God is by the grace He gives us to serve Him. So really, we are always more in debt to God the more we live for Him because we are owing everything that we do and all that we are to God's grace. God doesn't need me. I desperately need Him. Paul wants that to be clear. Uh, Number five, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Look with me at verse 26. Verse 26, and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, do you see here? Your life where you were born is not an accident. God determines the boundaries and the dwelling places of all human beings and all people groups for all of history. He is sovereign. In other words, you remember last week the uh, Epicureans? They're kind of like deists, think like Benjamin Franklin types. They believe that there is a God. They actually believed in God's plural, but what do they believe? Those gods are far away. You will never see them, and they will never care or know about you. They will never be interfering or intervening in your life. They are distant gods who don't make any difference in your life. And Paul says, actually, no. God is so intimately involved in your life, He determines the very place you were born, where you live, and every breath you take. God is is right there. He uh, He is next to you. Just got to pause here for a moment. Maybe this is dated now by about 10 or 12 years, but about a decade ago, a guy named Christian Smith, who I don't think is actually a believer, he was a sociologist, and he, with a team of sociologists, they did a massive investigation of, I suppose it was millennials at the time, but of basically college-age type people, and they did a massive survey about those who grew up in church or other religious backgrounds, and they polled all this amount of data, and it was fascinating when the results came out. Here is what they said 10 years ago, so I know things are already changing, but 10 years ago, um, what really, I guess my generation, what was true of us religiously? Whether you grew up in church, doesn't matter. They boiled it down. Here's the religious views of my generation in three words. Most of them were, most of us are, moralistic, therapeutic deists. Thank you very much. Uh, moralistic, so that moralistic therapeutic deism, they said, was the prominent religious belief across the board for essentially millennials uh, a decade ago, and I don't think that has radically changed. So, just real quick, those three words, number one, moralistic just means live like a decent moral life. Don't get in too much trouble, be a decent person, make some good habits, make the best of yourself, moral, moralistic, into morals. Number two, moralistic therapeutic all God really cares about and all I really care about is just feeling good about myself. You know, looking within, seeing what's there, living it out consistently, just being happy with myself, feeling, having positive self-esteem, positive self-image, just sort of these kinds of things. And number three is deism, which they mean not that God is completely absent, but that He's not 
overly concerned with my everyday life, but then on the big moments, He might intervene or He might step in and do something here or there, but largely God is distant in my day-to-day life. Well, there, there you go, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, the millennial generation, and Paul says, no, God is right here next to us. And that leads to my next point, number six, God is both transcendent and imminent. God is both transcendent and imminent. What I mean? He is transcendent, meaning He is above and beyond the physical world because He made it. He is far transcendent. He is holy, holy, holy. He is beyond us. Well, that's not all. That would be bad news if that was all we had. God is also near us. He is imminent. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. It says, God determined our dwelling place, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually, contrary to the Epicureans, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. So, the God who made everything, who is holy and beyond, He is also as near to you as your left or right side. All you have to do is whisper and He can hear you. All you have to do is think of Him and He can see your thoughts. You can pray to Him without opening your mouth. He can see you. He knows. He's there. And if you will turn to Him, He will have you through Christ. You you, get this. The world is not lost. Listen to this. The world is not lost because God is so far from the world. Why is the world lost? Because we are so far from God. You know how different those two things are? God is like the prodigal father standing outside the front of the house, arms wide open, waiting for the son to return. And as soon as he sees the son on the horizon, he is willing to embarrass himself and race and run towards his son and to embrace and kiss him. It is not the, it is not the father who kept uh, the, the son and him apart. It was the son who of his own choice kept himself from, from the father. And God has his arms open. He is near us. Uh, he is as near as if we will call upon him. Number seven. God will judge the world through Jesus. God will judge the world through Jesus. Look at verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead." God will judge the world through Jesus. So, here's what he's saying. God made us. We owe everything to Him, and one day we will have to give an account of ourselves to Jesus. In other words, history has a destination. You know, sometimes the Greeks would say it was cyclical. You just kind of relive life. It was this kind of process. It would be cyclical. Some would say, no, one day, just like Hitchens, sun will burn out and we'll all be gone. There's just a, a dead, hopeless ending, like a dead end. But Paul says, no, there is a goal of history. It's all moving somewhere and is moving towards Jesus. And one day we will stand before Him. But there is hope. Number eight, God will save the repentant. God will save the repentant. Look again at verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, it says God has overlooked the times of ignorance. That doesn't mean everyone who's never heard the gospel, is saved. That's not what he's saying. Otherwise, why would Paul be preaching to people about the gospel if they're going to be saved automatically because they have never heard the gospel? Of course not. What Paul's saying is God in His patience has not judged the world yet. 
He has overlooked the sin of all the nations for all of history, allowing them to go on living another day, another day. And and He has been patient, but now He is commanding all to repent and to turn to Jesus. And if they will, they will clearly be saved. And number nine, this is the last major point, and then we will go to one concluding uh, point for several minutes. Number nine, God resurrects the dead. God resurrects the dead. Verse 31, the end of the verse, He has given assurance to all by raising Him, Jesus, from the dead. Well, that may not seem like a big deal to mention the resurrection, but do you remember what got Paul in trouble in the first place? Look back at verse 18 of chapter 17. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, that's the deists and pantheists, also conversed with Paul. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, listen, Paul knows that in the minds of these thinkers, the most preposterous thing he could say is that God raises people from the dead. And you say, why? Why would that be such a hard thing to believe? In Greek thinking, you understand, the physical world was bad. Remember Plato? Get away from the physical world. The spiritual, non-physical world, the non-material world is superior, far superior. The physical world is beneath us. It is, it is inherently evil and bad. And Paul says, you know, we're going to all live in physical resurrection bodies, and Jesus has been raised never to die again from the dead. They're thinking this is crazy. So Paul is not capitulating to the culture for one second. Instead, he is taking everything he says to actually argue against their foundational beliefs and deconstruct them and to build a, a, an environment within which the gospel will make sense. The physical world is not bad in the Christian belief system. All right, now I want to spend a couple more minutes here. You guys are doing great. I know it's warm. You're doing fantastic. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes here talking about something that I think is particularly important for us today in a secular environment. This is sort of a separate independent point at the, uh, to kind of conclude things here. One thing Paul does in this message that we've all, I think, got to get better at, I, I certainly do, is Paul reveals contradictions in what these thinkers believe. Now, just, just to give an ad, because I don't have time to do this really long time, Nancy Piercy has written a book a few years ago called Finding Truth. The subtitle is Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, Secularism, and Other God Substitutes. Now, this is a really intelligent and well-written book, and her argument in this book is basically a long version of what I'm about to say, which is that she takes the writings of secular people and shows how they're either inconsistent with each other or inconsistent with what things that we all know are true. And it's a very powerful way to undermine someone's beliefs. So, okay, I'm not, my point here is not to be mean-spirited, okay? I'm just going to state the truth. Every worldview that is not biblical, we believe, is a false worldview. I'm not saying that to be mean, I'm saying that to be helpful. Every worldview that's not biblical is a false worldview. Now, if it is false, which we believe it is, then it is going to always have… So, all false worldviews, I don't care what it is, all false worldviews are always going to have two massive problems. They are going to contradict reality, general revelation, and they are going to contradict themselves. And what you should do, and Nancy Piercy does this throughout the whole book, is you're looking for areas where a secular belief contradicts itself and contradicts the world that we know around us. 
I'll give you one silly example, then I'll give a couple more, more serious examples. I've told this, I'm sure, at some point. I had a like three or four hour uh, meeting with a guy, younger guy, years ago at a Jittery Joe's Watkinsville. And uh, we were talking about God. He, he had grown up in the church, and he had actually grown up as a Christian. He had rejected the faith uh, as a college student. He had gotten into some drugs, and I don't know what all was going on. And he actually, he's sitting there across the table at Jittery Joe's, and he says to me, he says, you know, for all I know, you're not even real. Talking to me. It's like, thank you very much. You're, you're not, you may not even be real. You, for all I know, it's like the Matrix. Like, I'm plugged into some computer somewhere, and all around me, everything's just a, you know, just some kind of illusion. How do I even know that you're real? And, um, okay, I'm going to argue that belief system, which a lot of younger people toy with that kind of stuff, I'm not even kidding. Uh, you may think that sounds strange, but that, that is something that you'll hear more and more. How do you respond to that? And the answer isn't so much with a linear argument. What, what you should do is you should show how nobody can live for five minutes in the real world like that's actually true. So you believe that you're living a dream right now. You don't believe that because you actually care what you get on the test. You actually, like, so that what I actually did with this guy, and I'm not, I mean, I, I, I didn't do this long, but I reached for his keys in his phone right away to steal them. Can I get an amen? So, why, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Because it's absurd. As soon as I actually do something that personally offends him, what does he do? He goes, stop. I'm gonna, like, don't do that. I don't exist. I'm just part of your dream. It's you doing this. I'm just part of you. Like, does anyone for five minutes actually live? Like, when someone offends them, oh, that's just, it's just a dream, and they're just, they're just part of my imagination, so I'm not going to be offended. No, we get offended. Why? Because we know that's a real person, and we know that they're actually offending us. So that belief system, which is false, contradicts reality. It contradicts what you obviously know is true. You've never lived for five minutes like you're actually living in a dream. And if you do, you're either going to harm somebody, end up in jail, or accidentally hurt yourself terribly. I mean, it, just, it is unlivable. Any belief system that you cannot live for five minutes is not true. <laughs> If you, if you cannot live it out for five seconds, you, you don't really believe it. You don't actually live it consistently. And so what we need to do is we need to show how there are massive absurdities in belief systems that are not actually biblical. Paul does it right in front of us, and I think this is brilliant. Look at how he, he mentions… Um, let me show how it contradicts itself. Uh, uh, look at verse 27, the end of the, the last part of the verse, yet he is act, God is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, uh, the art and imagination uh, formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay, pause there. Do you see Paul just did this? He says, okay, you guys say, your own poets say, God made us. We're His offspring. He quotes that. And then he says, but then you turn around and you carve an idol and bow down to it. Let's think about that for a second. God made us, but then we turned around and made God, right? We carved some gold, carved some stone, carved some wood. Remember Isaiah 44? Isaiah is mocking this. God through Isaiah is mocking idolatry. He goes, okay, so here's what you do. You walk through the woods and you cut down a tree, right? And you get this nice piece of timber there. You got this nice piece of wood. And what do you do? You cut the wood directly in half, and with half of the wood, you make a fire to cook your meal, and with the other half, you chisel it into a god and bow down to it. I'm glad you cut the right piece of the wood. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, what Paul's saying, listen, your own writings say that God made us. He says, I actually agree with you on that. God did make us. But then you turn around and you carve an idol and you bow down to it, give it food, give it offerings, and you treat it like as if it's a, your deity. If God made you, how can you carve and make God? You see, you're contradicting yourself. You don't, you, 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 you don't actually believe what you're actually saying in your own writings. And so Paul is undermining what they actually uh, claim to believe. Um, let me give a quick illustration here uh, from… This is, I'm 
quoting Don Carson, talking about Mark Dever in Washington, D.C. Don Carson says this, My friend Mark Dever, pastor of a church in D.C., uh, he is a pastor in D.C., he's a very gifted one-on-one evangelist. He has become friends with, uh, with Claudia Winkler, editor of the National Standard, one of America's most pre- prestigious political newspapers. Listen to this. Claudia was a convinced postmodern, right? There's no capital T truth. It's just whatever you want to believe is true for you, but don't tell other people what to believe. However, she went to Papua New Guinea for work and discovered the story of a Roman Catholic priest, this is awful, who had seduced hundreds of boys over the past 35 years, sexual abuse, for 35 years. Claudia was horrified by this evil. Do you see the problem? She can't believe in evil. She's a postmodernist. There is no objective truth. There's no objective right and wrong. But she knows because she's made in the image of God. She sees that and she goes, that is evil. But she could not call it evil. She couldn't call it that because it would contradict her own belief that there is no ultimate truth. Her postmodern presuppositions would not let her call it evil. Well, she talked the situation over with Mark, the pastor. Mark asked her, Claudia, was that evil? Was what he did evil? She went home and thought about this. She could not sleep. She kept saying to herself, but this was wicked. This was evil. And then it dawned on her that if she had a category for evil, evil, maybe she also was evil. By then, she was very close to the kingdom, and since then, she has become a Christian. Now, the point there was, what she said she believed was there is no objective right and wrong. There's no objective evil in the world. It's just your truth and my truth and whoever, you know, just kind of live your life. That's what she said she believed. But can you live that consistently? Not when you face a horrific case of sexual abuse of children for 35 years and you look at that. Everybody knows because God has given you a conscience. No matter what you say you believe, you know that's evil. You know it's evil. In fact, you, you, will, you will argue with people, that is wicked. That should be stopped. We should send in the police. We should, that man should go to jail. And I agree with you. But why? And the answer is, God made us. God is the objective standard of right and wrong. God gives us His law by which we measure things. He's given us a conscience. We're in His image. He's given us a conscience to know what's right and wrong. Therefore, I can say, because those children are made with, with dignity and worth in God's image and likeness, that anyone who abuses them is doing something unspeakably wicked and should be punished legally. I can say that because the biblical Christian worldview gives me reasons to say that. But if you're a secularist, you might feel it's bad, but you can't say why it's bad. I'll tell you one last story, and then I will, I will, I will wrap up. Another time at UGA, around the same time I talked to the Hindu kid, I talked to another guy, also with Vic Doss, okay? So I have a witness in case you think I'm making this story up. This is, Vic was standing next to me for part of this conversation at least. This guy's a young guy, smart guy, probably 21, 22 years old. I think he may have been a biology major. Definitely not a, um, an unintelligent person. I'm talking to this guy. And he says he's an atheist, which is pretty typical. And I say, okay. And so we're talking back and forth. And finally, I just, I got, I got kind of, I was just like, I, I got to be direct here. Call this cognitive dissonance. When you say you believe one thing, but you know it's not true, and then you put pressure on that spot where you can't stand it, and then they go, oh, I guess something's wrong with my worldview. That, that's what you want to do. You want to you put pressure where there is conflict in their own thinking and feeling and try to get them to think about it. So I said to this guy, pretty intense illustration, but I just said, I said imagine that uh, a, a girl was being uh, raped, frankly, on, on UGA's campus, and you saw this uh, attack, this assault happening. I said, what would you do? And I, first, I asked him two, I said, number one, what would you do? Number two, do you believe it would be wrong? Like, objectively, is that wrong? I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to convince you. I'm not making up what he said. This is a normal 22-year-old at UGA looking at me with a straight face, not kidding. He said, I couldn't say it was wrong objectively, but I would say I wouldn't like it and I would try to stop it. Now, 
He's at least trying to be consistent, isn't he, with his premise that there's no right and wrong, no purpose? But I said to him, and this is okay, you can get a little bit in people's face at this point because it's so absurd. I said, I said, you don't believe that. He's like, what? You can't read my mind. I said, you don't believe. I said, you are made in the image of God and you know, you know, in your heart of hearts, you know it's not just something you, it's not a taste difference. Like you prefer chocolate ice cream, they prefer vanilla ice cream. Some people prefer protecting people. Some people prefer harming people and just do whatever you like to do. You know that's not true. I was like, you know deep down that that is evil and you would try to stop it because you know it's wrong objectively. And he didn't know what to say. You know, say. So my, my point here is we, we, should, we should enter into their world, find what they believe, try to use some of their own beliefs against them, right? Cognitive dissonance. Point out where what they say to believe and what they know to believe don't actually agree. Put pressure on that point. Do it in a loving way, but you can be intense, but do it lovingly and try to ask them questions. Of how do you explain evil if there is no purpose in God? And then come back to the Bible and give the whole picture of the Bible. God is knowable. He's one God. He created us. He sustains all things. He's self-sufficient. He's sovereign. He, tra- he is both transcendent and He's near you. He's imminent. He will judge everyone one day through Christ. He will save anyone who will repent and put their faith in Christ's atonement on the cross, and He will one day resurrect all of us from the dead uh, at, at that point of judgment. And so, Christianity is not just another belief. It is the true belief, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, it is true truth it is actually true, and it actually makes the most sense out of the world that we live in. All right, let's uh, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I, I, do, I do at times just, it, it, is, it is overwhelming to think about how many bright students are just right down the street from us right now who have been taught really unlivable things that are simply false to reality, false to Your Word, and so many of them don't see the inconsistency between there is no God and we should really care for the underprivileged, or we should really help the poor, or we should really do this or that. And God, I I do pray that uh, college students just generally right now would, would begin to open up, that You would open up their eyes to show them that there is a far better answer to their questions, that there is a far more satisfying foundation for human dignity and worth in, in, in the image of God, and that there is salvation in Christ, that you are not a distant deity, that you are imminent, that you are as near us as we can turn and speak to you, that you hold out your arms to us, that you desire our salvation in a real sense. And God, I pray that you would awaken just thousands and thousands of students across the nation and across the world to see that, that secularism is an, is, is an empty shell that it is a bankrupt system, that it cannot do so much of what we think it can do for us, and that only the Lord Jesus can free us and give us joy and forgive us and give us ultimate purpose in this world. And so I pray, God, that we would uh, be able to engage well with those who are more from a secular perspective, that we could love them well, and that we could point them to Christ and show them the whole story of Scripture and how it all ultimately culminates in the person of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.